This is episode number 160 with Mark Goblowski. Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. At each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Hey guys, what's up everyone? Welcome back to the Success 101 Podcast. So excited to be here with you guys today. And man, let me tell you, we've got a great, great guest on board. If this is your first time tuning in, this is always is your host, Jared Warren, author, investor, advisor, coach, and dedicated to helping you reach your maximum potential each day. Before we jump into our show today, I want to thank you guys so much for the ratings and reviews that you've left on iTunes. I really appreciate that. I can't tell you how important it is to have listeners who give back. And if you haven't left a review, it's super easy. Just open up iTunes, go to the search box and type in Success 101 Podcast or The Success 101 Podcast with Jared Warren. Once you're there, you can click the review tab and leave a review. I have people ask me this all the time. Why are reviews so important? It's because it's what Apple uses to rank the podcast and reveal them in searches and featured posts to other people and really what helps spread the message of the podcast. So when you leave a review, you're helping to get this message out to other people. And I can't thank you enough for those of you who have gone and done that. Also, I wanted to make sure you guys knew that my book, From Success to Significance, the strategy manual is currently 50% off the cover price. I did a 50% off earlier in the year. I've brought it back week after week. I'm going through the six vision building exercises and many facets of that book that I hope really kick you guys into gear here in 2017. And so many of you have asked to grab a copy of the book so that you can follow along. My team has made it so easy for all of you. Just head over to success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book. Again, success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book to grab a copy of your own. If you're outside the U.S., please select only the e-reader book version when you get to that part of the website. But if you go grab a copy now, then you will have in your hands the exact book that I'm going through in my live episodes lately, as I mentioned, where I'm taking you guys through the vision building exercises to help you move not only through success, but also on to greater significance and peak performance in your life. So don't wait and go grab that. Now, onto our show, our guest today has a phenomenal story, and that is a true understatement. Mark Gobloski runs the Strength Through the Struggle podcast, where he discusses building resilience and how pushing forward through pain can help us gather strength and grow to higher levels than we ever thought possible. Mark's story came to an incredible turn when his son Joshua was involved in a hit-and-run accident with not only one, but two semi-trucks. Josh was just three and a half years old and left with a traumatic brain injury, We talked through what their family went through, the guilt they felt, and what he has done from day one to keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's just an absolutely incredible story. It's an amazing episode, and I'm so excited to bring all of you guys this story today. So without any further delay, let's jump right into my conversation, episode number 160 with Mark Gobloski. Hey guys, welcome back to the Success 101 podcast. I'm here with Mark Gobloski. How's it going, Mark? It's great. And thanks for having me, Jared. I'm super excited to be here. 
Man, I always get excited about people that I have on, but I'm really excited to have you on because I think the listeners can learn so much from you just from the areas of hope, adversity, difficulty, really digging deep in some of your darkest moments. And I think those messages out there are certain messages sometimes that people don't want to talk about on podcasts. They're afraid it's going to be a negative tone. They're afraid it's going to be something that maybe some people don't want to tune into. But your story is fascinating. And for our listeners out there who don't know about your story, I think they're in for a real treat today, especially if they're going through some struggles of their own. But before we peel back the layers on that and really start getting into what you and your son Joshua went through and all the other different facets of your life, even before that, I'd love to know just from you as someone who has been through some adversity and really learned to turn that around, even in your darkest times, what does adversity really mean to you as it has been in your life, as you've experienced it? Well, Jared, you know, that the term adversity really gets thrown around a lot. And so I think a lot of people have a lot of different understandings of it. I kind of lump adversity into two separate categories. One is an adversity that you're prepared for. You know, maybe you've had some schooling or some training in that specific area, you know, like a Navy SEAL, he trained, went through a lot of adversity, but he's prepared in general for the adversities that are ahead of him in a very, very narrow field of vision. The adversity that I've been exposed to were generally adversities that I had no idea were coming and I had no idea how to handle them. Like I was completely unprepared for it. And so adversity to me is those situations where they get thrown in front of you and you just didn't really see them coming. They're unexpected. And you don't always feel prepared or like you have the skill sets to get through it, at least in the beginning. Right. And that's why it feels adverse. That's why they often feel overwhelming. I think that's really interesting the way that you broke that down. I don't know if I've ever heard that before, where there's one type of adversity that you're prepared for, almost like by design. The other types of adversity are by default. It's a great day. Something's going on. Suddenly we get the phone call. We get the news. We get something. And the thing that I've learned is adversity is different for different people, but you can't tell someone that what they're going through is a small issue when you're not walking through it yourself, right? I mean, I know your story. Some listeners out there may not just yet. We're about to dive in here. But what you went through was both earlier in life as your childhood growing up with your family and then on into what happened with your son, Joshua. I mean, you've been through some seemingly really tough stuff. Now, I know the end result of that is going to be how it's changed you, right? I mean, that's what I hope our listeners take away is how you've turned despair into hope and growth. But you don't know how adversity is affecting certain people, especially when it's not from the design standpoint, but it's by default. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is relative to a person's circumstances. Like the person who doesn't have $650 to pay the rent at the end of the month, that's an adversity. That's a big deal. If that's the biggest deal that they've had to experience in their life, that's what they understand is as adversity. Now, the person who's experienced cancer sees adversity differently, and they might look at, well, I could find a way to get $650 together pretty easily, but this cancer thing, now that's adverse. Or the person who's been blind their whole life. And it's all relative to our experiences. Yeah, it's all circumstantial. That's so interesting. So I've heard you say before that nobody takes any action when they don't have hope. And I don't know if I've ever heard it phrased that way before. As we start diving into the intricate parts of your story here and unlocking this for our listeners, talk to me about what that phrase really means to you. This is, again, it's just from my experience. When hope disappears, so does action. And 
in my own life when I have lost hope from time to time, or you know, just for a period of time, maybe I've lost hope, I quit taking any action whatsoever. And one of the examples that I use is if a man is out in the middle of a lake and he falls out of a boat and I'm standing on the shore, but I don't know how to swim, I have no hope of rescuing him. So I literally won't jump in the water and go out there and try to get him safely to the shore. I have no hope, therefore I won't take any action. And I think that applies like everywhere in our life. Like if we lose hope in our business, say we get the idea in our head, well, this isn't gonna work and I'm not seeing the results. And all of a sudden my hope for a positive outcome dissipates. My actions on a daily basis uh, go the same direction. I just quit taking action. I, maybe your life's different, but I think that when you actually lose hope, there's no reason to take action anymore. You just can't see a positive outcome. And it doesn't matter whether it's business, relationships, health, anything. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because, uh, you know, in the business world or just through many various podcasts or interviews or fill in the blank, right? You hear people say all the time, how do we learn how to put one foot in front of the other when things don't seem to be going the right way? And I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is if we can find a way to dig deep, if we can find a way to really, again, just search within ourselves or within the situation and say, if I can find hope. And for some people, that might be a, a glimmer of hope that leads them, you know, take that spark and take action and get through the situation. For some people, it may be a very clear path of, hey, once this was revealed to me, I knew that I could get through this situation. It's not always going to be in the same form, right? No. But I think that question out there that so many people, you know, a lot of times it's in business where they struggle with that of how do I keep putting one foot in front of the other when things just don't seem to be going the way that I want them to go? Well, yes, there's a lot of systems. There's a lot of techniques. There's a lot of mindset things, positive affirmations and things that you can tell yourself. But I think it really from your story, I think it really does come down to finding a way to have hope because if you can't, as you mentioned, the guy in the boat, if you can't swim, in most cases, you're not going to go try to say, because your brain tells you differently, right? Your brain tells you, don't do that. Don't jump in the water. There's no way you can save him. Go find something else to go do. Go try to find a rope. Go try to, you know, but without the hope, you're not going to do anything. I think if a relationship has fallen apart, it the root of it is that one person lost hope. If I give up on a business, it might be the numbers aren't coming in. I, I mean, I get that. But at the root of it is I don't have any hope that this is going to turn around. Now, it might be based on the numbers. It might be based on a gut feeling, whatever. But as soon as that hope disappears, I just I'm not going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm going to change directions or go do something else. Right. And so what I want to do is we again, as we start diving into your story here, I would love for you to tell our listeners how you learned how to rise up how you became such a disciplined person with your martial arts studio and all the things that you were doing, even during the time that you were starting to go, you were going through that adversity and just how that hope from going through that replaced your despair and how that took you to where you are as far as your mindset and the way that you're handling everything today. You know, I've certainly had some challenges in my life. They've challenged me mentally, physically, emotionally, and throughout all of them, you know, my spirit keeps beating this drum that like you got to keep going 
But there have been times where I did want to throw in the towel, at least briefly. You know, the biggest challenge that I've had in my life is when my son Joshua was hurt in a hit and run car accident with two semi trucks. He was three and a half years old. Uh, he was riding in the back of his mother's car. He was in a, you know, an approved child safety seat. Everything had been done correctly, except for the fact that a semi truck moved into the lane where his mother's car was and caused this collision. And then a second semi truck hit him again. So that was absolutely the darkest time of my life. And when you go into a hospital and you see your child, your three and a half year old, it wouldn't matter if he was 13 or 27. When you see them on a ventilator, you see them on life support, you know, your whole world gets turned upside down and everything that you thought was important is no longer important. Right. Like I started to not think about, you know, when my son grows up, he's going to, you know, go to college and get married and have kids and all that. I'm thinking like, is he going to make it through the day now? And when I go to sleep tonight next to him on a chair, are we going to wake up together in the morning? And that wow. could create some real darkness around your spirit. I remember sitting in the hospital room the night of the accident, and it happened on a Friday morning at 8 a.m. And on the interstate, <laughs> hundreds of cars, and nobody got the license plate of all things. But I remember I was so scared that night that I held his hand when I finally started to doze off in that chair. And I remember thinking, man, if I can hold on to his hand, his physical body, that maybe I could keep his spirit here with me. And that when I wake up in the morning, he'll still be alive because the doctors couldn't tell me anything. He was in a coma. He'd had a massive brain injury, which affected both hemispheres, all the lobes and the brain stem. It was a combination of, you know, bruising, swelling, fluids, as well as shearing, which is the technical term for shaken baby syndrome. Yeah. And I just sat there hoping, praying that he would get through the night. And that darkness came and went. When the doctor, the neurosurgeon consulted us on day three, day four, he told me, he said, if Josh survives the week, he'll probably live. But beyond that, I can't tell you anything. There's wow. no other information that I can give you. And so I started watching that clock until day seven hit. And once day seven hit, I was like, okay, he's going to live. So now what do I do? Because again, nobody could say anything. The brain activity was limited. There was so much damage. They didn't know if there would be any recovery whatsoever. Yeah, that's so interesting because seven days after a traumatic injury like that, the, you know, he's on life support, as you mentioned, seven days I mean, I'm sure it felt like an eternity to you, but I can just the grand scheme of time flying by seven days goes by in a blink. Literally. It's amazing to me that even after seven days, they thought, hey, if he can make it this long, he'll probably live. Because I'm sure at that point in that very short amount of time, like you said, brain activity was still limited. He probably was still hooked up to all the stuff. I'm sure there was still part of you that even though you had that hope of like, OK, he's going to make it. I bet you had a lot of second doubts when he was hooked up to everything and things weren't progressing maybe as fast as they don't sometimes. Well, you know, about two weeks into it, a, a rehabilitation doctor consulted. And after he gave me his prognosis, I asked him, is this possibly the 
as good as it gets. Like the condition that he's in, laying in that bed, not able to move, drink, eat, do anything. Is this possibly the best that we could get out of this? And, you know, the doctor hesitated, but then he said, yes, you know, this could be the best outcome that you're going to get. Again, that kind of gave me a platform for the bottom to stand on. Like, okay, I prepared myself for the worst. Now, how do we move forward into something better? But even though I had hope at that point, the daily circumstances of seeing your child in a bed, unresponsive, unable to create any movement in his body whatsoever, the circumstances started to outweigh the hope. Like I had a long-term vision of he'll get better, but on the day-to-day basis, when they're trying to perform therapy and he can't lift his arm, he can't lift his head, he can't close his eyes on command, he can't do anything, all of that kind of outweighs your hope. And I realized I was starting to like lose a little bit of energy and mm-hmm. I was starting to feel a little depressed and I was feeling darkness coming over me. And about two months into this, I thought, man, I cannot be here for my son in the way I want to be if I let this darkness keep pushing in on me. And I started asking myself, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to maintain my energy, my outlook? And then a phrase came to me that I'd heard uh, years before, and it, it goes like this, always remember in the dark what you know to be true in the light. And for me, this darkness of him not being able to do anything, him not really responding to the therapies in the way we would hope, him you know, needing medication, him, I mean, you gave him a shot, he wouldn't even wince, nothing. So stepping back from that, I thought, holy cow, I've got, I really have to reset my brain for this position of believing in my heart constantly what I hoped for things to play out, how I wanted them to play out. And I went to the nurse's station and I asked for a post-it note. She handed me a yellow one. I turned around and walked away and I went back and I says, Hey, do you have any of those bright pink ones? And she gives me a bright pink post-it note. And I write on there, always remember in the dark what you know to be true in the light. And I took that post-it note and I slapped it up on this big, dark brown oak door going in and out of his room. And I forced myself to read that because the circumstances were diverting my energy. And I was getting depressed and losing my ability to be supportive to him. And I couldn't let that happen. I had to be there for him. I didn't know what was going on inside his brain. And I knew instinctively, just in my gut, that if I lost hope, I would quit taking action. Yeah, and I hope the listeners are really taking note of this out there, no matter what you're going through. Mark, I know from your story, there was a, you know, your childhood, your upbringing, your family wasn't the most ideal situation. And that's not even a a great way to put it, right? I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on there as well. You had to grow into a man very quickly early on and learn how to defend yourself and protect yourself and then became a father. And then now this has happened and there's just been a lot of struggles in your life. But no matter what you're going through out there, again, we can't tell someone that their adversity is different or lesser or more than what anybody else has gone through. But I would just encourage all of you guys out there to just dig deep to keep finding the hope, whether it's something as simple seeming as putting that post-it note up on the door, walking in and out of Joshua's room that you can read every single time you walk in. I think the biggest thing was you identified that. You identified the fact that you, I mean, you've said it like three or four times already in this podcast. I couldn't let myself allow the darkness to come in because then you wouldn't be the person that you needed to be for him. And you recognized that that hope was starting to slip. But I think if you went into that situation not knowing first and foremost that you had to have the hope or you wouldn't take action, 
I don't think you would have started noticing when it started slipping because you would just be living by default. You wouldn't have recognized that that was happening. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are living by default and maybe not aware of what's going on inside us or even around us a lot of times. And I think part of this, your podcast and this episode, you know, we're helping to point that out for people. I believe like this is the core of my life now, helping people to maintain hope because, you know, I've already said it without it, you just quit taking action. And I, you know, as a child, I did. I grew up in a home that was maybe less than loving. It was violent. I was sexually abused, not within my own home, but outside the home by several people. Uh, the home, like I said, that I lived in was violent. My father was a violent man. He was doing the best with what he had to offer at the time. But nonetheless, you know, I experienced a, a lot of violence at his hand. And I grew up thinking, if I'm going to be a father someday, I don't want my son to have the experience that I had because it was that miserable. It was so discouraging. I mean, I remember sitting there thinking as my father would behave the way he would or he'd be beating me thinking this is not the way it's supposed to be. Like there is a better way. Life doesn't have to be filled with this strife and this combative nature and this violence. I didn't understand it and I think by extension, therefore, I just believed that there was a better way. But it was really tough growing up. My father was not a kind man in any way. And my mother was unable to protect me from it, mm. which was a confusing point because the two people that are supposed to be loving you the most, one is hurting you viciously and the other one's not protecting you. Right. And it causes all kinds of confusion in a person's mind. But I guess even back then, there was this thing inside of me that said there was a better way. Man, that is amazing. I can't even put myself in that situation. Back to the time that you spent in the hospital with Joshua. I know that you were there. I think you guys were there like four, four and a half months. You were there with him the whole time, slept there, showered there, all those sort of things. I think even the person who delivered him at one point, you asked for, you know, hey, give me the truth. And you could tell that they were kind of hesitant, didn't want to do that. And what was it that they responded with? Someone who had children of their own, this doctor, right. what was their response when you said, you know, don't hide it. Give me the truth. What are we dealing with here? I asked his pediatrician who came to the pediatric ICU the day of the accident that evening to see Josh and check on him. I remember seeing an emptiness in all the doctor's eyes. Literally, there was no hope in anybody's eyes. You know, several years later, I, Josh was in for an appointment and um, I asked the, if I could speak with the doctor privately. And so they took Josh out of the room and I asked the doctor what she thought when she showed up at the hospital that night and after she had looked at the radiology reports, et cetera, you know, and she hesitated. She didn't want to actually answer me. And I said, please, I don't care what the answer is. I just want to know the truth. Like, what were you thinking? And her answer was, you know, I was hoping that he would just pass. From what I could see, it was going to be so hard for everybody involved, Josh and you guys, that I really just hoped that he would pass. And in that moment, that was the first time somebody actually said out loud, really, really how bad it was. Like I could, I sensed it, I felt it in my gut. I could see it in their eyes, all the doctors. Yeah. But she finally said it out loud. And this is a pediatrician and the mother of five children. And her best hope in that moment was that he would pass. 
because it was going to be so difficult. And it, it turned out extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And over time, it was hard to maintain hope because I wasn't seeing progress three years, five years, seven years later. Because in my mind, I had this vision of he's going to be healed someday. Right. And it just hasn't happened completely. Yeah. And, and for the listeners out there who don't know the full story as we're laying it out here, this is not just something that four months in a hospital and you go home and it's like, hey, great. We survived that horrible thing in life. I mean, this is an ongoing thing. Josh is what, 15 today? He is. He's 15 and a half. 15. And what type of support does he need from, I would assume, everyone around him each day? What is his condition now from going from life support, as we were describing it a few minutes ago, you guys get out of the hospital, but now 15, what does life look like for him? You know, in in many ways, it's awesome. I mean, he has such a sweet spirit about him. He's got a great sense of humor. He walks, he talks, he feeds himself for the most part. Which the doctors didn't think he was going to be able to do any of that, right? Exactly. They thought, I mean, when I finally got all of them to tell the truth over the years, they none of them thought he would ever walk or talk or eat on his own again. They didn't tell me that during those four months. But it was years later, as I asked each one of them through various doctor visits, nobody thought he would ever survive. They're all shocked. Wow. And what is his brain capacity like today? I mean, does he recognize, you know, I know he's, you said he's feeding himself. And, but, I mean, his brain, from what you described, is a global injury, right? It affected yes. both hemispheres, brain stem. I mean, that is, that's such dangerous territory and, and obviously why the doctors didn't think it was going to be a, any road ahead. But what is it like today in 2017? Well, you know, if you were to see him walking down the street, you would look at him and go, hey, there's something wrong because of the way he walks and the way he moves his body. And if you got close and if he was just sitting at a restaurant table and you walked up and started a conversation, you would realize within the, you know, a few seconds that there's something a little different. His eyes look a little different and his speech is a little bit different. He reads on about a first or second grade level. He does math on about a first or second grade level. His memory has been challenged dramatically. You know, he has intellectual deficits, memory deficits, cognitive deficits. You know, his body is compromised in its ability to move the way he wants it to move. His muscles are all fine. It's that his brain can't communicate with them very well. Right. So there's lots of good going on, but he he's always going to need somebody to live with him. And he's challenged in the way that he lives in two worlds. He lives in the world of disabilities, and he also lives in the world of a normally developing child. And I think in parts of his mind, he remembers what it was like to be a three and a half year old running around my martial arts school and uh, mimicking all the movements and just having that freedom. And last summer, he came to me and he said to me, Daddy, I don't like having disabilities. And that was the first time he actually saw me shed a tear because I knew that he knew and I knew, you know, that it was breaking his heart like it was had broken mine. And yet I can't feed that, you know, too much. I, I identify right. and I recognize it with him and I, I sympathize with him. I empathize, but I have to keep pointing him back to this road of possibility and back to this road of hope in spite of his awareness now that he has these deficits and these challenges that, you know, other people don't have. I mean, he watches his buddies running around and he can't do the same thing. He wants to have a skateboard. He wants to ride a bicycle. You know, he wants to drive. He just is not capable of doing those things right now. So, yeah. but we have to keep trying to 
point it in this positive direction. It, it's hard, man. And, you know, I mean, it's really, really hard. I'll just be honest. It's And as a father of three myself, we're all young. And I mean, I'm relating with this because I've got a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, there's not many things that pulls me to tears. But, um, man, that tugs at me because, you know, I just I see my little kids running around. And, you know, it kind of makes me think here just, you know, when you were created, it's almost like we— Many people out there say, and I think it's said so much nowadays, it's kind of just become the common thing to say. It's like, what a responsibility is to be a parent. You know, it's greatest responsibility. It's the greatest, you know, it's a great, it's a hard, some of the hardest work, but it's the greatest responsibility you'll ever be in charge of. And I just think, you know, whenever it's on your level now, as you were created and as you were put here on this earth for a purpose, long before you knew about Joshua, it's almost like, okay, God, what an awesome person God knew that you would become in order to take care of him the rest of his life. And I know at, at one point I'd heard that maybe you didn't even want kiddos, you know, I mean, that, didn't. and so now through that struggle, through that adversity, I'm sure there was a lot of you speaking for you here, but I'm sure there was a lot of you that was the, you know, as we all do sometimes of, of why me, like, man, I, I didn't even know that I wanted kids. Now I had to have a child three and a half years in this happens. He's going to need help the rest of his life. But I know that just from what you're talking about, what a better, there's no better person to help him than you, someone who knows that that hope has to be there. What an awesome responsibility. And I can tell that you own that. Talk to me about your, about your faith in this situation. How did your faith play into this from being in a bad place early on in life, as you mentioned, and just knowing that, you know, that stuff doesn't go away, the stuff you were talking about with abuse. I've never had to live through anything like that, but I've known many people who have, and the scars stay, you know, mentally after you even become an adult and it frames, you know, kind of who you are. But, you were in a bad place early on. You had to grow up to a man yourself and learn your own identity and then becoming a dad and having to deal with this issue, as we mentioned, when he was three and a half years old. How did your faith play into all of that, especially during those darkest times? You know, when I was a kid, I grew up Catholic in a small town northeast Ohio. And, you know, we literally lived less than a block away, three houses away from the church and went to Catholic school. And so I was in church all the time. and. I remember as a child sitting in a pew at church and it dawned on me that God was as real as the oak pew that my hands were on. I mean, I literally had that thought like, wow, God is real and he's here and he's with me. And I think that moment in time has proved to be a blessing that I got in advance of this event in particular but it was there to sustain me through my life. You know, in the, in the Bible, it says faith is the substance of things hoped for. And I really believe it is a substance, like it's something tangible and real. And when we invest in it, it turns around and invests back in us. And it can sustain us. That day that I put that post-it note up on the door, it was an act of faith. I was choosing to believe and behave as if my son was going to be completely healed. And so I was doing everything in my power to do that, which included maintaining hope. So I, in turn, I could maintain action. But faith has been, I don't know, maybe it's my backbone at times. Unfortunately, at times I bend a little bit, though. You know, when I... No, we all do. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. But it really helps me make it through every single day of my life. And without it, I don't know where I would be, honestly. I think I would have folded, like completely folded and allowed 
the negative world to just take over my life. Alcoholic, violent, abusive. I don't know. I, I can't even imagine without my faith where I'd be. Yeah, this world is a very easy entry point into destruction for people that don't hold on to hope and hold on to faith in many different capacities, whether it's similar to your story or all sorts of things people are dealing with out there. It is a very easy entry point. The power of understanding that and just understanding how dark the world is out there and how you can slip so quickly and so easily once you lose hope and once you lose faith into many things that will just send you on a spiral. You know, some people recover from it. They have a couple of different times in their life where they have to come back from this adversity, but some people don't. So I, I just think your story is is fascinating from that standpoint. How did you learn how to rise up with someone with so much discipline and growth in your life now, business owner, practicing martial arts, being such a patient person with Joshua? I know without even knowing you that that has to take so much patience and just putting a lot of your desires on the back burner. How do you think you grew into that type of person even before his accident with so much discipline and growth after being in the backstory that you had in life? Because some people, like I said, the scars stay with them. Their mindset is affected and they don't, whether it's maybe, you know, lack of better words, excuses or whatever, they don't rise up from that. And they always let those circumstances be the reason they're held down in life or they don't rise up and overcome. What do you think it was that was different with you that made you into the guy you are today? Well, I think, my childhood certainly had plenty to do with it. I didn't grow up believing in myself, but I believed that there was a better way. And so I pursued this agenda of there's a better way. And trust me, I have fallen down more times than I've, you know, stood straight and, and ran and been successful. Yeah. And I think that's good for listeners to hear as well, because, you know, you can hear a story like yours of, hey, I went through this stuff. And then I went through the thing with Joshua and and here's who I am today. But, you know, we have to remember that losing hope doesn't mean that you you catch a glimpse of hope and then you're super hopeful the rest of your life. Like, no. that, that's not how it works. I mean, there is always something that's going to make you stumble and fall down. And so I think holding on to that, persevering to the end is is what's so tough and why so many people struggle with it. So anyone who's struggling with it out there, you're not in the minority. You're, you're in the majority of people. But my hope is that you do hold on to it. Yeah. You know, I think God just blessed me, honestly. You know, Viktor Frankl in the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He, oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, it's such a powerful book. And it's it's difficult to read in some ways, but it's just so, it really distills that our mind is so powerful that it literally determines life and death. And he came down to the conclusion, if you, in my opinion, when you distill that book down, he really came down to this idea that, you get to choose what you're going to think about, and you also get to choose how you're going to feel about it. And I think that's where we get tripped up. We think about the negative too much, and or we assign negative meanings to things that happened. You know, disappointment, pain, all those things influence that. But we really do have the power of our mind to decide what we're going to think about. And like I said, I just had to remind myself, I'm not kidding you, just two hours ago, to be hopeful. I had to run that thought through. I could feel myself getting negative and I just had to run my mind through my own filter, my own acronym for the word hope so that I could get a little reset and a refocus in my brain and remember what was important. So it's a daily thing and it's an it's an exercise that you have to go through. I well, I don't want to speak for everybody. I have to go through it. I have yeah. to consciously retune 
to the idea of hope and possibility because you do get tired and bad things do happen and sometimes there's no explanation. So you got to reset and uh, refocus and remember what's most important. And that's such a great reminder. None of us are perfect, you know, in a perfect world. We'd never had adversity. We'd never have a reason to even have to have hope because it would just be there around us all the time. You know, you wouldn't have to dig deep. So talk to me here, just our last point here, just, and we've covered some of it, but adversity and growth. So many people, they don't want adversity in their life. They don't want pain. We run from pain. It's how we're, I don't know if it's how we're wired or just how we tend to act whenever pain comes on us. We want to, you know, it's the, the fight or flight. We want to get out of it as soon as possible. But if you look at the most successful people out there, if you look at the people whose lives have been greatly enriched by the lessons they've learned as yours have, I mean, I don't want to go out on limb and speak for you, but I would guess based on your story, you have become 10 times the man that you would have been had nothing happened to Joshua because of what it's made you have to become. Am I correct on saying that? Is that a true statement? You know, I thought I was a pretty decent guy doing decent, you know, good work before I was, you know, teaching hundreds and hundreds of people every single week. But you know what, this whole event, the difficulty of the, living through a tragedy like this, I believe has changed me forever for the better. Just like going through the abuse and the violence as a child caused me to have a thought like there is a better way. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And that changed me. So all these adversities, all these struggles, and all these challenges, they really do have the opportunity to turn us into a better version of ourselves, a bigger, better version of who I believe God meant for each one of us to be. And without the adversity or the challenges, we really don't have an opportunity to get stronger. I mean, unless you go to the gym or, you know, lay down on the floor and start doing push-ups or whatever, your body won't get stronger. You have to experience the resistance of the floor beneath your hands and you pushing your body away from it or the stack of weights in your arms and pushing them up over your head. That resistance has to be there for us to get stronger. And when emotional challenges come in, mental challenges, business relationships, they're all there really as an opportunity to shape us into a bigger and better version of ourselves. The problem is we look at them as inconveniences and cha- and burdens, and I'd like to reshape that conversation as these are actually opportunities. It's tough in the thick of it. I get it. I'm there all the time, and I have to constantly remind myself, but these really are opportunities for growth, to love more, to be more compassionate, to be of uh, bigger value in the marketplace, to be a better mom or dad. It doesn't matter. They're all opportunities to be better. Man, such a great description. My thought there, before I ask you about if this made you such a better man, and you so adequately described it there, we always run from fear, we always run from pain, we always run from adversity, but the people who have been the most changed in life and the most some of the most successful people out there that have accomplished much through whatever category you want to fill that in with, they have that story of some version in the back of their life, in the back of their mind, where they say, if this hadn't happened to me, there's no way I would be the person I am today. So... This is a surefire way for me to figure out what I need to do most. It's the thing I want to do the least. Like when I don't want to go to the gym, that's the thing I really need to do the most in that moment. (laughs) And it's not a perfect measuring stick, but oftentimes those things that we're resisting dealing with, the problems in our life, those are the things that if we press into it 
and we deal with it, we're going to get the most benefit from. I mean, those feelings of discontent or uh, difficulty or even despair or struggle, they are cues and clues to where we need to focus our attention and deal with the problem to actually make ourselves better or make our lives better. Absolutely. Mark Gabluski, thank you so much for your time here today. And thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, if nothing else, thanks so much for being the guy that you are to teach us all that adversity does not have to be where you stay and adversity and pain does not have to be, especially when it comes to our kids, because that's such a, you know, a lot of things that happen to us is, you know, especially as guys, not to stereotype here, but like we're maybe we're just too hard headed. I don't know. But it's, a lot of stuff that happens to us as guys, we can just find a way to fight through it. Right. Even if we don't have a lot of hope there, it's like this just. Right. Let's just keep fighting and grinding here. And that may not always be the best way to approach things. But when it happens to our kids or it happens to us out there as kids and it affects us so much as the ways that we live the rest of our life, that's a time when you can really lose hope and really lose despair. And so for everyone listening out there, whatever you're going through, whether it was abuse when you were younger, whether it was something with your children, whether it was, you know, any of that, I just, as you mentioned in Victor Frankl's book, we have the choice to choose we have the, I, I've talked a lot about an uh, individual named Stan Toller, who I did a podcast on, whose episode hasn't come out yet, but Stan's whole deal is, uh, he's got a ton of books out there, but one of the books we were talking about was The Power of Your Attitude, which sounds kind of like a, you know, nice, warm and fluffy book, you know, and then you read it and you realize, no, wait, you really do have the power to choose your attitude and your thoughts today. It's not just some make-believe thing, right? I think you absolutely did that with something even as simple as putting that post-it note up on Joshua's door. I mean, we all need post-it notes for different things in life, and that's such a great reminder. And I think the biggest takeaway I have of this whole thing today is, number one, we are able to choose, but number two is just always reminding ourselves that when we lose hope, we will not take action just based on the way our brains are wired. So I'd encourage you guys to hold on to that, do whatever you have to do to hold on to the hope, even if you can't see it, right? Even if you know like you did as a child, there must be a better way, even though I don't even really know what I'm talking about at this point. You just kind of knew there had to be a better way. Hold on to that, you know, if nothing else, and explore that, test it, seek that out. Man, what an awesome message. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate your time. Let's talk about real quick as we wrap up where people can find you out there. I know you've got your book, Strength Through the Struggle, and your podcast, Strength Through the Struggle. Uh, just awesome, awesome material that I know is in your book. Where can we find more about you, your book, your podcast, all those sort of things? Hey, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for asking. You can go to markdoblowski.com slash success 101. And if you opt in there, I'm going to send you actually my formula for being able to maintain hope in absolutely any and every situation of your life. I will line it out for you and you'll have a recipe to maintain hope no matter what. That's Mark Gobloski, G-O-B-L-O-W-S-K-Y dot com slash success 101. Oh, thanks so much for providing that. That is awesome. And where can we find you in the world of uh, social media? You also mentioned your website there, markgobloski.com. What about yeah, social media? You bet. You can hit me up on Facebook and Twitter at Mark Gobloski. Either one of them, just reach out, start following me. I like to post uh, stuff. And I'd love for your audience to share in it. I try to create stuff of value. That is great. Thanks so much for your time here today. And we wish you the best of success, both you and Joshua, as you guys continue down what, you know, let's face it, is not going to be an easy road for him the rest of his life, you know, and uh, what an awesome opportunity you have. And uh, for our listeners out there, I know they're going to take so much away from this. So thanks for adding tons of value and life lessons here on the Success 101 podcast. We wish you the best. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Hey guys, I hope you took a ton away from Mark's story today to sharpen and grow our mindset and resilience through the adversity, through the pain, and on to higher levels than we ever thought possible. If you guys would like to connect directly with me, the best way to do that is by email. Just hit up my team and I at info at success101podcast.com. Again, info at success101podcast.com. Or you can catch me in the world of social media on the Success 101 Facebook page or on Instagram under the name at Success 101 Podcast. Once again, go grab your copy of From Success to Significance, the strategy manual at success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book so that you can follow along with all of the live episodes that I'm doing right now as I give a breakdown of the book and help to make your 2017 even greater. I'll catch you guys on the next awesome episode of the Success 101 podcast. Until then.